Welcome to the Royal Society of Medicine's Trauma and Orthopaedic Section podcast. My name is Akib Khan. I am an orthopaedic registrar on the RSM Council, and I will be your host through this series of podcasts. We will feature global experts and key opinion leaders discussing innovation, progress, and current practice within their subspecialties. These speakers have all contributed at one of our events. For more details on our events, please visit the Royal Society of Medicine website or on socials using the handle RSM Ortho. In this episode, we are joined by Mr. Tim Spaulding. Mr. Spaulding is a renowned consultant orthopedic surgeon based at the University Hospitals Coventry. His expertise includes autologous chondrocyte transplantation as well as an unrivaled experience in meniscal transplantation. He is also one of the lead developers of the National Ligament Registry. Thank you very much for joining us here at the Royal Society of Medicine. I wanted to start us off by asking about the meniscus. Would you mind walking me through how you would approach a patient with a meniscal tear? Yeah, thank you. Thanks for asking me to, to do this. I think we've got to understand the various patterns of the meniscus tear and where if we're talking about the traumatic tear in the younger person, not a degenerate um, tear, then it's evaluating the meniscus from the history through to the investigation using MRI scan. Then we're looking to try and save the meniscus. There are many patterns of tear that are not then uh, repairable. And if we've got a flap tear that's pushed down into the medial gutter, then those are ones that are not going to be repairable. Those flaps need to be removed. But if the main part of the meniscus is detached uh, peripherally, then these are ones we should be repairing. It's probably one in 10, two in 10 only that are, that are repairable. But we understand the importance of saving the meniscus. So then um, using MRI will tell us vaguely where the tear is, but it's not going to tell us if it's repairable particularly. Um, so we're uh, relying on uh, at surgery determining that and we use guidelines for that. The rim needs to be four millimeters or so. So that's the vascular rim. That's a rough guide about four millimeters, which is the length of the arthroscopic hook. So if you can lay that on there and it's um, you're getting a rough guide of what four millimeters is, um, then we want it to be reasonably fresh and we'll say up to four months or so of, of time point since injury. And we use those factors. One I was, um, the one I was uh, told was if the meniscus rolls in the joint, so when you pull on it with the hook and it comes easily under the femoral condyle and, and rotates upwards, then they're not repairable. They're too flimsy and the remaining rim is likely to be very small. So that's how we assess the meniscus. Thank you. And you mentioned a couple fours there. And I know that there are a few other fours mm. that you include in in. Uh, your rules for how you approach the meniscus. Could you elaborate slightly on that, please? People always ask, what, when do you repair and when do you um, not repair? And, and it's hard to be so specific. So we came up with this the sort of rule of, rule of fours by this time period of the four millimeters, then the duration of time from injury, four months. And then for after surgery, We'll, we'll use a full weight bearing regime. I'm very aware there is a different regime of no weight on the leg and just being on crutches. But if, if certainly for the peripheral tears, four weeks on crutches in extension, that compresses the meniscus. So that's good. And then four, four months before going back to sport. So it gives us something to hang on to. And clearly those time periods are slightly made up, but they give a rough guide to, to how to do it. And then the age of the patient 
to fit the fours in, in your still in your 40s or less. So in other words, up to age 50. There is some good evidence that repair at any time will still work, but I think it's less, to me, it's less successful over age 50. And just to ask you, when you, when you see a young athletic patient who has a meniscal tear, which you think is repairable, what do you tell them in, in, in your clinic? Most repairable tears may appear in our acute knee clinic when, with the locked knee, uh, but it's not going to go straight. Then they'll, they'll report locked 30 degrees or so, but they can't get it straight by that much. That's a big chunk of meniscus. So we'll tell them it's very important to try and save the meniscus. There'll be a discussion about that they want to maybe get back to sport, but generally the small number of elite players that we'll see, those have those got to make a decision. The Now, if they want to get back, fine, don't have it repaired, just take it out, but then they're going to be in trouble later. For most people, they should invest the effort in trying to have it repaired which means organizing an acute knee list to be able to um, try and get in in the next week or two before they've walked on it too much. And then explain to them the importance of saving the meniscus and the effort in um, looking after it during rehab with an eight out of 10 chance of that repair will then work. You also talk about a few different techniques for repairing the meniscus if you decide that the meniscus is amenable to repair. Would you mind elaborating slightly on how you approach this? Yeah, so th this is determining where the meniscus tear is. Most, most tears, peripheral tears, will be in the posterior third. So if we're dividing the meniscus up into a posterior part, middle, and anterior part, then most tears are going to start at the posterior third where they then um, get caught on the femur as you compress the meniscus. And the big full bucket handle where it's still attached like a handle at the back and at the front will flip across lying into the, into the notch. For the posterior third, use an all-inside device because that then avoids having to do an open approach. The inside-out sutures, passing needles from inside to out, which is the main way of repairing the meniscus, leaving a loop of suture on the in, inside. If you're going to go to the posterior third, then you're in danger of being near the vessels at the back. So we'd need a small mini posterior approach and putting in a a retractor device, a teaspoon type device to capture the needles. So because of the advent of the all inside fixation devices, then all inside for the posterior third and then inside out sutures for the mid third, but they don't quite reach the anterior third. So we still have to have the ability then to do the outside in sutures, which pass a needle from outside in. So we need those three strategies for the zones. You could use a lot of the all inside devices, and that gets very expensive to repair a meniscus with 10 of those devices, say. But if you can do four fixation devices, the posterior third, six to eight sutures, mid-third, you've got a really good hold on a bucket handle tear. And that's the bare minimum we need. And on the theme of fours, uh, you, you then went on to talk about the meniscal root tear diagnosis. And uh, over here, there are four points that you pointed out that the um, surgeon should look out for. Yeah, so we had um, the a history of a pop. You could feel the meniscus. You need to look for it on the MRI and you need to probe the meniscus. Right? Those are the four. But what we mean is the, the patient may describe a pop sensation. They felt something go. Now, most root tears, if they're not associated with an ACL, will be in the 50, 60-year-old um, patient. And they might be stepping up from a, a bus or they're moving downstairs and they feel a pop in their knee and pain at the back of the knee. And it wasn't a twisting sporting injury, but they felt something go and it really hurts afterwards. 
So there'll be a pop, and then you examine the knee, and the ACL's intact. So it goes with an, with an injury, a moment. They're tender on the joint line. You may actually feel there is fullness on the joint line, this palpable extrusion, either medial or, or lateral. It just doesn't feel like the other knee. So that's a giveaway sign. The meniscus has been squeezed out to the side because it's no longer attached to the, the root at the back. So it's like a C-shaped device pushed out. On the MRI, you've got to look for it. Look for the ghost sign uh, on the sagittal view. Uh, and then on the uh, coronal view, seeing there's a gap between the posterior horn and the and where it's attached. And then the meniscus squeezed out to the side. So you've got to look for that particular slice where the, where the root should be and following a normal meniscus down onto tibia. And then at ACL reconstruction, we've got to probe the meniscus, actually try and lift it up off its base just to see if it's still intact. If the meniscus is not looking normal, then it may have just become detached. Um, and so that's our way of being aware of them and looking for them. Great. That's my four points. And if we move on, let's say there's now a tear which is not amenable to repair and it's in a young sporty patient and you now want to consider meniscal transplantation. What are the main points to cover in regards to meniscal transplantation in terms of the beneficiaries? And is there a proven long-term and economic benefit to performing this procedure? The meniscal transplant works if we define that as people who are in pain after losing their meniscus and they, they're coming in a year, two years down the line from having lost the bulk of their meniscus, be it lateral or medial, and they have pain on activity. So they've had to stop the running, the sport, because they know it hurts from the lack of the cushion. So if we can put in a meniscus transplant, we'll get nine out of 10 happy. Yes, 10% will re-tear, and some may still have some discomfort, but it's a very effective operation in that group. We know the joint's then at risk if you've lost the meniscus, and eventually the evidence would point to there being wear and tear if you lose the whole, whole meniscus. Not everyone gets that immediately. So if a patient's not got symptoms, I would not advise meniscus transplant. We haven't got that evidence to show it prevents arthritis later. It may not prevent arthritis, but it may give people quality of life, which then allows them to stay active uh, and have less symptoms or no symptoms. It's probably going to fail in the future. Most meniscus transplants will in the young people, but it's bought quality of life. Um, Without the meniscus, they're going to do less, less sport. So our ideal patient is then someone who's got the um, got symptoms related loss of meniscus. And if they haven't got symptoms, then advise follow-up. So get an MRI scan at a year after surgery or maybe in two years. Some people might start to get wear and tear on the joint surface without much in the way of symptoms. And that could be another reason to do transplant. Clinically, it works. And you asked me just now about the cost effectiveness of it. And the, we have a dilemma there because... There isn't much natural history study on patients who have symptoms. And this is where we get into trouble. We know what happens to a lot of people who lose their meniscus, and very few get arthritis for many years. So if we're using arthritis as an outcome measure, we know that a proportion get arthritis. But the patients who have meniscus transplant are a different group. They are the symptomatic patients. So what we don't have is a good comparator for patients who have symptoms and then have nothing done about it to know what happens to them. And if you were to compare meniscus transplant against not doing meniscus transplant in symptomatic patients. And that's the next trial we've got to do. We did our pilot study to show the benefit 
of meniscal transplant in terms of symptoms. Now we need to compare that on a much larger 100, 200 patient group, and we're applying for a big grant to do that, to really show that it does work compared to not doing anything in the symptomatic patient. So the cost-effectiveness health economists have worked hard on this to try and put value to the quality of life, to the qualities gained by doing meniscal transplant, comparing it to not doing it. You can't put that number to say it is cost-effective. It's £5,000 for a, for a graft, approximately. Uh, the operation is then expensive to do. And these numbers have to be calculated if we're doing new techniques. So that's the next study to try and, try and answer. So if you wanted to summarize meniscal surgery, what are your key points in regards to the meniscus? It's clinically effective. We can say at uh, 5 or 10 years, um, 80 90% are still good. Maybe at 15, 20 years, is down to 60% are good. So we know there's a problem in the future and we need to address that. Lastly, I wanted to ask you a bit about cartilage and whether you could uh, briefly cover the etiology and the natural history on uh, cartilage injuries and and the treatment options available, uh, perhaps going through the cartilage repair landscape. Articular cartilage is is a whole big topic and it's common to see damage in the joint, but not everyone gets pain and articular cartilage itself doesn't have nerve supply, so it's coming from around the joint subchondral bone area or synovium and irritation from it. So we have a um, variety of techniques and there's been focus on trying to grow articular cartilage, which is an expensive technique to to regrow joint surface and regenerate what is so complex to, to make. Those techniques are good for the larger lesions and that's something above two square centimeters. So below two square centimeters, that's two by one, then those are a smaller area. A one square centimeter is even smaller, which is in a small pothole in your driveway that really doesn't need very much done at all because your wheels roll over it. Your femoral condyle is big enough. So less than one square centimeter very rarely causes trouble. Up to two square centimeters, then I like the oats procedure. That's um, osteochondral articular transfer system, moving articular cartilage from one part of the knee, that's got very good uh, results with it. The microfracture is also good at that small level as well because they're small lesions and it can produce a form of fibrocartilage repair. So that's good for the less than two square centimeters. And above that, we're getting less good results with microfracture. So then we have a choice between some form of augmented microfracture which is a fleece on top of microfracture. And microfracture makes the bone marrow, it's a bone marrow stimulation, drawing out tissue, good cells to repair. So the choice then is for an augmented technique or growing cells, putting them on a fleece or a membrane and putting that back into the knee. Now, NICE took a while, but they looked at the evolution and the value of ACI, the autologous chondrocyte implantation, and showed three years ago then that it is, it works and it is cost effective compared to microfracture. So microfracture is cheap, but doesn't really work for long. ACI is expensive. Um, uh, there were figures of 18,000 pounds and um, in practice, it's probably 11, 12,000 for the actual cells. But at that expense, it has to be very effective. And they showed that it was. The trouble is it took so long to come up with that judgment that the companies went out of business supplying it. So and they've made it very restrictive, even though we know it works and is better than microfracture. 
So that's a growing field and there's a lot of licensing and um, uh, application around that. So I'm in Coventry, uh, did my first ACI in 96 when I was Navy before coming to Coventry. And I can't do it at the moment. We haven't got ourselves organized enough to get it back doing it. So it's very frustrating with a technique that works. We know is better than microfracture, but we can't do it. And then around that, we have osteochondral allografts, which is, again, a very successful technique. Now, that is cost effective. That's been shown. We published a paper last year. Osteochondral allografts, which is viable tissue from a donor within 28 days of death. Uh, that's a, a effective technique, 20 year results. Uh, and we do know what happens if you leave a crater empty in the knee. So that can be evaluated on the cost effectiveness. So that is cost effective. It's expensive, 12, 13,000 for a, a, a half a knee. But the prevention of arthritis and the delay to have a knee replacement is now recognized. And therefore, you can put a cost effectiveness number to it in it, the cost per quality. The vital amount, the ISA, is then uh, all within the realms of what could be paid for. So that's a good technique. ACI is, is cost effective. And then for the small lesions, we have microfracture and oats. The future is about better supply of osteochondral allografts and evaluating the augmented microfracture techniques. So something cheaper than the ACI. Thank you very much for uh, running us through everything to do with um, meniscal and chondral surgery. And I'd like to thank you again for participating and lending your expertise uh, in this area of knee surgery um, at the Royal Society of Medicine. Thank you for listening to the Royal Society of Medicine's Orthopedic Section podcast. For more details on our events and speakers, please visit the Royal Society of Medicine's website or follow us on social media using the handle RSM Author.